Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from an unseasonably hot San Francisco on September the 21st. It's early afternoon. Actually, it's probably seasonably hot. It's always hot here in late September and October. Um, we're going to do a show today on a, on a perennial theme, a theme all too perennial um, in this country, uh, racism and its legacy. Um, and particularly focusing on the issue of statues and memorializing uh, what happened and, and what continues to happen, I guess, in some ways, in terms of the history of American race and racism. Um, it's never much out of the news. A couple of weeks ago, uh, that statue in Charlottesville of, of Robert E. Lee was finally removed. Um, Apparently, according to one headline, the South will not rise again. Uh, the argument in favor of removing Confederate monuments goes on. It's hard to imagine there's really an argument in favor of keeping these monuments. Um, and the discussion or perhaps the controversy about monuments has, has, has shifted from getting rid of memorials uh, inappropriate memorials to the construction of appropriate ones. Uh, here's a New York head, uh, Times headline actually from today asking whether Chattanooga uh, needs a lynching museum. Uh, the text suggests it does. Um, uh, it's indeed a memorial that's going to be unveiled this weekend of uh, honoring a black man who was hanged from the city's Walnut Street Bridge by a lynch mob in 1906. Um, this issue of statues, of remembering and forgetting, is not just an American thing. Of course, it's, it's worldwide. Uh, uh, headline from El País, Spanish newspaper today, about protesters in Colombia uh, getting rid of monuments of Spanish conquistadors. And indeed, uh, Last year, the New York Times did a, a wonderful photographic series about how statues around the world, uh, statues symbolizing racism, are falling. Uh, lots of images for people listening. You don't get to see the images, so that's why you should be watching this, particularly, of course, associated with the Black Lives Matter movement of last year, which continues this year. Uh, it's extending around the world, Black Lives Matter. Here we have an image of uh, statues being gotten rid of and thrown into a river in Bristol, England, uh, statues memorializing slave traders, uh, even extended to Belgium, where a bust of the King Leopold II, who was perhaps the worst uh, mass-killing racist in history, was removed by the city. Um, and it's extended, of course, in America to New York City. Theodore Roosevelt's statue outside the museum was taken away not because of uh, Teddy Roosevelt himself, but because of the, uh, the African-American man symbolized next to him, which uh, offended many people. Uh, today, as I said, we are talking about statues, about memorizing, uh, about remembering and forgetting, and whether or not these statues should be got rid of, particularly in terms of American history and the history of uh, Southern racism. Uh, my guest is Connor Town O'Neill. 
He's the author of a book. It came out last year. It's, it's, it's a prize-winning book. It's an excellent book. Uh, and it's just out in paperback. It's called Down Along With That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning With Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. Uh, Connor is joining me from Auburn, Alabama, appropriately enough. Uh, Connor, it's a great book. It's, it's a kind of combination of history, of travel, and of outrage. Is, is that a fair way to describe it? I like that. I think that's a very fair way to describe it. I, I think others have gone with with personal essay for that third one, but you're right. It is. <laughs> um, there's certainly plenty of outrage in it as well. You were outraged in particular um, by um, a man called Nathan Bedford Forrest, perhaps less outraged by Forrest himself than by the memorials uh, left to him over history. Uh, that is your prologue. Tell me about this guy, Forrest, and why he's so offensive. Uh, we find him on Wikipedia, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a 19th century American soldier who, of course, fought on the side of the Confederate Army. That's right. So actually, this summer was just uh, marked his 200th birthday. Um, and, and he really comes of age as as the the South, as we think of it, comes of the American South, as we think of it, comes of age in the 1820s, 1830s. This is, you know, the Indian Removal Acts, the Trail of Tears, and that that land of the Deep South is being opened up um, for uh, for plantations, and of course, then for the the the, mo the movement of enslaved men and women down into Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, um, and Forrest becomes a slave trader first in in northern Mississippi, and then in, in, into Memphis. becomes by some counts one of the wealthiest men of the South um, through the slave trade. His slave market in Memphis is moving a, a thousand men and women through it every year. Um, that that phrase being sold down the river is very literally applies to what he's doing. Um, becomes a millionaire. Uh, when the war breaks out, he enlists as a private uh, to defend his right to, to buy and sell men and women. Um, over the course of the war, he becomes the most promoted soldier, north or south. So he rises from uh, from a private up to, by the end of the war, a lieutenant general. Um, and, and the folks that admire him, admire him, or at least publicly, they talk about how they admire him for uh, for this sort of his military tactics. Um, he, he didn't go to West Point like Lee or Grant. Um, and so they, he's admired as a sort of natural genius or an untutored genius as the plaques on some of his uh, statues say. Um, but he's also accused of committing war crimes during the war, the, the slaughter of surrendering black soldiers at Fort Pillow in 1864. Uh, and of course, after the war, he serves as the first Grand Wizard of the Klan and operates a, a um, convict leasing plantation just outside of Memphis, um, a, a practice known as slavery by another name. Um, so he, he, throughout his life, his entire life, he's bound up in these in these moments of, of racial violence, exploitation, um, and, and, and war. It's astonishing, really, as you describe him. Um, uh, you, 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 you talk about chasing this man's statues. Um, and in one section in the book, you suggest that there are, what, 30 or 40 statues um, in, in Tennessee and elsewhere in the country. And here is a man who, as you say, was a war criminal, guilty probably of mass murder, one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, um, does this capture the absurdity of our 
memories or certain people's memories of the Civil War? Absolutely. The absurdity and also the the magical thinking of it. Yeah. And, and, and how bifurcated our, our memory is. I, I, I think that I think that there's um, our, our sense of American exceptionalism dictates um, that that we, we're because we're the greatest nation in the world, because we're this democracy and we have these values. Well, we we and I I, am, I certainly wouldn't include myself, actually. Uh, you claim to be the greatest nation in the world. I'm not oh, sure yes, anyone absolutely. would agree outside no, of no, this no. country. It, we, it's a story that we tell ourselves. Right. Um, and, and and that story sort of insists that we have a happy history, that, that we have a, a that our history, our past flatters us almost as a kind of birthright being an American. It's certainly not something that I agree with, um, but I but I think that's, you know, to sort of describe what is what is happening in the sort of collective memory of Americans. I, I think that's part of it. And and so what it but there's so much in our past that indicts us um, and that that would hold us responsible to the kinds of inequities that that, that still exist in American life um, and that break down along racial lines. Um, and, and so the Civil War and the practice of slavery, which the Confederacy was in no uncertain terms fighting for, that presents a real problem to that kind of American exceptionalism. And so there is this lost cause, Southern magical thinking about um, if trying to, and, and very successfully trying to frame the war in terms of the heroism of the soldier, um, the sacrifice of, of the, the sort of every man, uh, Southerner, and to, to sidestep the sort of thornier issues of the fact that they were explicitly fighting to maintain a, an ethno state and to be able to continue to, to enslave uh, uh, black Americans. And this kind of romanticism, we've had a number of discussions about this actually on the show recently, this kind of discussion, this kind of romanticism was, was, was captured and represented by supposedly great writers, I guess they were great, like Faulkner, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, Faulkner in Intruder in the Dust talks about how uh, for every Southern boy, uh, it, it, it's always the moment just before Pickett's charge when the, when the war hasn't been lost yet. And, and that there's this sort of uh, fantasy of, of, uh, of, of the South winning or certainly of the South rising again. Um, and it's interesting, you know, for, for, for Faulkner to make that claim that the sort of Southern imagination or the Southern male imagination, at least, um, taking place at Gettysburg. And, you know, I grew up just down the road in Lancaster. So I think there's a there's an interesting uh, connection there that that's something quintessentially Southern for Faulkner, at least, um, was happening in the North. Connor, is that why statues interest you so much? They're a way of, in a sense, freezing history as if uh, to, 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 um, to borrow some words from Faulkner. Uh, going back to before the battle, when everything was up for grabs. Yeah, I think so. I think that is why they interest me. It, it, freezing history, or really sort of uh, it, insisting that we trace uh, that history into the present. You know, that one of the things that statues do is that they immortalize the the people who are commemorated in them they they pull them through time and keep us in in not just in our minds but but in our public parks our, our courthouse squares the names of our schools and streets um it's a way of immortalizing these men and 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 in that way sort of in it, prompting us to ask, you know, what, what does Forrest or what does the Confederacy have to have to say to us today? And I think, you know, given 
so many things the 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 racial wealth gap that's you know 10 to 1 right now uh, the mass incarceration the war on drugs so many so many things that that, that continue to um, break down along racial lines in this country i think that there's we we do well to think about the legacy of the confederacy or or men like Forrest who who had built their lives on this ideology of white supremacy and 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 the the sorts of uh, policies and actions that have permitted them to do Connor, give me a, a condensed version of the book. Um, as I said, it's it's partly a travelogue. You begin uh, part one in um, in Selma, uh, and you end in Montgomery. But you also, and we'll talk about Montgomery in a few minutes. But you also part three go to Nashville and Memphis. Um, why did you choose these places in particular? Selma, Nashville, Memphis. Well, I knew that I wanted to write uh, about not not Confederate, not just Confederate statues broadly, but specifically those about Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, and so I because I had this this strange encounter with a group of neo-Confederates who call themselves the Friends of Forrest uh, back in in early 2015, you know, before monuments in became a sort of mainstream political debate. Um, I, had, I had had this strange encounter with these neo-Confederates who were about to put up a statue of Forrest. And it, it just- And did they know what they were doing? I mean, were they explicit or were they simply sort of idiot romantics? No, they knew what they were doing. I, I met them on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which is the, um, the moment during the civil rights movement when Alabama law enforcement attacks nonviolent demonstrators, including John Lewis, who was at the front of the line on Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge. And so 50 years later, I'm in Selma for that anniversary and meet these neo-Confederates who are there sort of standing guard on their section of this cemetery in Selma, where they're about to put up a, a statue of Forrest and, and sort of smirking and snarling at the civil rights atten people attending the civil rights anniversary. Um, and the dissonance of that moment, the Confederates on, at a at a civil rights anniversary, just raised all of these questions for me about who Forrest was, what it meant to put up a statue of him, what it meant to do so in 2015. And so I started reading about Forrest and, and, and digging into finding his, where his different monuments were, found that there were a ton of them, as you noted earlier. Um, and and then, of course, what, what comes in the summer of 2015 is that Dylan Roof murders nine African-Americans at a, a church in South Carolina. And in the wake of that, uh, there becomes this massive referendum on on Confederate symbols and, and, and statues. And so I, I decided to start following some protest movements aimed specifically at, at statues or, or monuments of, of forest in particular. And and so I, I was there. Are, there are plenty to write about. You know, there are there are more markers of forest in Tennessee than there are of the the three men who became president from that state combined. So there were plenty. Yeah, of things that, to write about. That, that's what the Wikipedia says. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm quoting from uh, Wikipedia. As of 2007, Tennessee had 32 dedicated historical markers linked to Nathan Bedford Forrest more uh, than double than three former presidents associated with the state combined, Andrew Jackson, James Polk, and Andrew Johnson. I mean, that's really astonishing, isn't it? It is. It is. So there's plenty to write about. And I think, you know, in, in early, early, you know, uh, brainstorming out the book, I thought, oh, I'll write about 10 monuments, I'll write about 12 monuments. Um, but, but what I found was that I, I really wanted it to be a work of, of journalism, too. I wanted... 
um, I wanted to kind of report the past, as it were, but to do so by following uh, protest movements aimed at um, aimed at these uh, some of these monuments. And so the the four cities that I ended up writing about are the four that I, I, I felt had very active storylines happening in the present that I could chronicle. Um, so even though it is, a, is it is a work of history, it's about this man who was built who was who was born 200 years ago, it's also very present and it, it tracks movements like the 2016 election, the Unite the Right rally in 2017, um, and, and I think is, or at least tries to capture some very present stuff and, and connect it back to this deeper history um, of the Confederacy and the Civil War. You wrote this book, of course, before January 6th, where the Confederate flag was proudly flown um, in Washington, D.C. and inside Congress. Um, do you think the book might have been slightly different had it been written after January 6th? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I think I, I, I would have liked to 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 grapple with um, with a lot of that, you know, the, the summer of 2020, uh, all the statues falling then, and, and then of which I think then really charts the course for for January right. 6 as well. And and even more particularly, I wish that, I, you know, there's there's part of me that wishes that I could um, still be working on this because there's 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 stuff with forests that is happening now, too. So um, the the book sort of climaxes in Memphis when in in late 2017 the city of memphis removes this 30-foot bronze statue of forest um in a kind of end run a, a sneaky sort of end run around uh, state laws that that had um is this this is the is this is the statue removed from the health sciences park in, that's in right that's the one right there on the screen there um, right. so that that comes down um but but what's really curious about this this statue in particular is that he and his wife are buried underneath that statue. Um, they weren't originally buried there. They, Forrest died in 1877. That statue went up in 1905. So <laughs> leaders in Memphis at the time went and, and disinterred he and his wife from the, from the cemetery to bury mm -hmm. them under, underneath that statue. But of course, when it, part of the fallout from removing that statue was that the, the descendants of Forrest and, and the local Sons of Confederate Veterans Troop uh, considered that statue to be the headstone to their grave and and it accused the city um, and, and the people involved with that statue's removal uh, of, of sort of desecrating their grave. And, and so part of, and of course, lawsuits um, uh, result from this. And, and part of the settlement is that um, they, the, they can remove the bodies from the base of this, well, the former base of this statue. Mm. Um, and so I was in Memphis in June standing <laughs> in front of Nathan Bedford Forrest's empty crypt with this man, a, 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 a Van Turner, who's a, a, a county commissioner there in, in in Memphis, standing at the foot of his empty grave, who had, he had masterminded this removal. It was very strange to stand there with him and look look into this you know pit in the ground. Um, so, so the bodies came up in June and just on Saturday, um, they were reinterred uh, at the Sons of Confederate Veterans headquarters in Columbia, Tennessee. Um, it was a private event, um, but I, I tried to gate crash it. Um, and so I, I was there at the security checkpoint on the way into Sons of Confederate Veterans headquarters when uh, 
I was I was sort of found out. I didn't have a ticket, and and I was escorted out by by security. Um, and and later on this fall, they're going to they're going to put the stuff are these people, Connor? We we've talked about this. In fact, um, yesterday I had um, uh, I had uh, Tom Nichols on the show talking about uh, some of this stuff, and and he argues that these people are just kind of pathetic. <laughs> they're not poor. They're not unemployed. They're just pathetic. They're romantic. They're they're sort of n- n- nostalgic narcissists. What what do you make of them? Have these so called sons of the Confederacy have they changed over the last hundred years? People mythologizing this nonsense. I mean, the mythology is still there, and 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 I agree. It, it, I, I I was left. Feeling, you know, as I, I was getting dirty looks as I was being escorted off the grounds of the Confederate headquarters, I was getting dirty looks from these women wearing in their, you know, funereal hoop skirts, all black with the with the black bonnets. You know, men in these, you know, in their sort of their costumes of um, Civil War era, you know, generals' coats, and and it there there is it is a it's sad because it they they're they're working on bad history, but it but it, of course it's not really about history, right? It's something more emotional. It's something more about prerogative that they they sort of feel entitled to um, being able to control the narrative about the past, being able to to honor who they want to honor and 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 resent the sorts of critiques from. Uh, from progressives and especially from black people. Well, you don't have to be a progressive. I, I mean, I, I'm certainly not black and I'm not even sure I'm a progressive. You just have to be a human being to reject this stuff, don't you? <laughs> well, well, yeah, but sure, point taken. Um, I, well, the, they resent you too then. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope they do. Um, your, um, your couple of quotes at the beginning I particularly like. You quote Gene Rise from Why the Sar- I've read the book, but I can't remember this quote. Uh, you quote her, she says, they, she writes, they say when trouble comes, close ranks, and so the white people did. And then you have also a quote from Viet Thang Nguyen, um, an, an Atlantic writer, someone uh, I'm going to have on the show at some point. Uh, he wrote, all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. Is this war still going on? This confederate war between whites and blacks, or it's certainly over slavery and over racism. I, I think the battle over what that war should mean is absolutely still going on. Um, you know, of course, it's impossible to understate the power of the the, the consequences of the war ending, um, the the emancipation of of millions of of formerly enslaved black Americans, um, but. Uh, that military victory was not an ideological victory. Of, of course, the the story that the South and, and, and plenty of people in the North too uh, were telling themselves this this lie that that white people were by nature superior to the men and women that they were enslaving and and thus justifying that. And of course, that ideology lives on long after Appomattox. Um, and 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 we still really haven't felt found a way to fully realize um, a, a multiracial democracy. You see this in the in the wars over voting rights um, in, in in particular right now, but of course in 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 other areas too. The way that the pandemic has um, uh, by and large affected and 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 claimed the lives of of people of color in this country 
pointing up issues and, and discrepancies in access to healthcare and good healthcare in particular. Um, so, so in in so many ways, we continue to live in this in in a, a a country governed by this racial hierarchy, even if it's sort of passive at this point. There aren't laws enshrining um, segregation per se. Um, we we're still segregated in so many ways. Um, our schools, the corporate boardrooms, um, and and so. If we really want the war to end, or or the war over what <laughs> the battle over what the civil war should mean to us today, um, we're going to have to find ways to really um, actively intervene and and address the kinds of um, racial disparities that 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 exist in this country. I think that's the way to end the war. Ironically enough, given the furore, the absurd furore over the the burial of Forrest, um, at least of his body. What you're looking to do in a, in a kind of odd way is, is bury the Civil War successfully, uh, kill it, finally. It's almost like a, a Dracula-style story. You end uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, just up the road from, from where you're talking to me from in, in Auburn, Alabama, uh, at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, uh, a very important building um, which also incorporates the legacy museum from enslavement to mass in incarceration uh, uh, inspired by the Equal Justice Initiative by Brian Stevenson. Tell me a little bit about this National Memorial for Peace and Justice, why you chose to end the book here. Uh, part of what I was interested in, and you know, so much of the book is dedicated to these um, uh, statues, memorials, public history um, that, that tells lies. Uh, that 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 seeks to perpetuate, um, you know, at best, a, a myopic view of uh, of this country's past. And I think part of what is so powerful about uh, the memorial for peace and justice, or what's known sort of colloquially as the the lynching memorial, uh, is that it, it it seeks to to tell a broader truth uh, or to break a silence surrounding this past, specifically about lynching. You know, over from the end of Reconstruction to the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, so, you know, 1877 to, to 1950, you know, 40, over 4,400 uh, black Americans were were lynched in this that we know about. Of course, there there are many more that that are are not documented. Yeah, and you write about that in a in a in a, in a stunning uh, 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 section. You said, "I'm I'm standing here to take in the more immediate setting the 805 steel markers that surround me. Uh, the memorial hallows this high ground for the approximately 4,400 victims of racial terror lynchings." that took place in America between 1877 and 1950. Um, and then you, you go on in, in 77 years, 4,400 lynchings. That averages to a lynching every six days, roughly one every week for 77 years, every week from the end of Reconstruction to the dawn of the civil rights uh, movement. It's, it's, it's very troubling and also beautifully written, Connor. Con I wouldn't say congratulations, but you seem to have captured both the, the 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 tragedy and absurdity of this history. That's right. I mean, it is astounding that those are those are terrifying numbers, right? They make the 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 and these are all that's known. I mean, we're not talking. Right. For example, uh, we've had a number of shows. We had a show about the uh, the Tulsa massacre. We had a show a few weeks ago about the the race riot in um, in Arkansas. The uh, the Elaine race massacre. That doesn't even include that kind of stuff. 
That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So it's it's just sort of it's one um, it, it, it's one piece of the puzzle. But but in all of these, the the we're really seeing a trend now, this referendum on our past that I think that this memorial is a part of uh, the stories surrounding um, what happened in Tulsa, the Wilmington um, race riot as well. You know, we're in this moment where there where historians, activists, writers are are trying to break lawyers like Brian Stevenson are, are, are trying to break this silence because it's been so conspicuous. There are these there are these horrific, terrifying um moments in our past that 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 we don't talk about uh, and that we don't publicly acknowledge. Uh, and and so part of what is so powerful about about the 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 lynching memorial is that it breaks this silence about something that is stunning and 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 horrifying. But what it also does and 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 it does so in in a profound way in the the legacy museum as well is that it says this is not this is not just some blip. This is not just some random thing that happened, you know, in the first part of the 20th century. This is a there is a through line from slavery to our present day um, policies, actions, lynchings, race riots uh, that are meant to protect violently protect this sort of racial hierarchy in this country and, and to, to talk about it, to talk about this past, to to break the silence around these moments, I think in some ways uh, tries to hold us accountable um, for the for the past that we have inherited, right? We want the good stuff. We want to inherit the house. We want to inherit the fortune. Um, but but with that, we should also inherit the sorts of inequities that 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 have made that kind of land and, and, and monetary acquisition possible in the first place. And so one of the things that's really powerful about this this memorial in Montgomery is that there's there's a in in the image that you've shown it, it looks sort of like a colonnade right there are those columns there. Mm. Um, but actually what happens is that as you move through it the floor sort of drops out from below you. So those markers that look sort of like columns they keep their place. But the floor drops out, so you're moving lo lower and lower until you're underneath them, and and those markers become like gallows, and you are standing under them and looking up at them, and in this sort of <laughs> genius, um, the, yeah. the, the the terrible genius of the design of this is that it 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 forces you into the position uh, as if you had attended a lynching, and we know from the kind of history that, that the EJI has done, documenting there were lynchings that thousands of people, tens of thousands of people had attended some of these. It was sort of public sport um, to, to, to lynch Black Americans. Um, and, and that, forcing you into that perspective, to, to, to yeah. encouraging you to understand yourself or for me, at least, I'll speak for myself, to, to understand myself as a white right. American. Well, we enter the, past, the through, our, th past through through almost a trick of architecture. And right. you compare this to the memorial of the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin, a, a very moving place that I've passed by hundreds of times. Um, uh, I, I'm curious, um, we've had Carol Anderson on the show, the very distinguished Emory University historian, uh, she's an old friend, and she's argued both publicly and privately with me that Americans need to come to terms with their past in the same way as the Germans have. Would you agree? I mean, obviously, 4,400 or 5,000 or 10,000 deaths is not the 6 million Jews, but still, uh, is there an equivalent in terms of how Germany seems to have confronted its past, whereas American hasn't? I think so. I, I think so. Even just in terms of truth telling, uh, a willingness to publicly acknowledge what has been done, 
um, and and as as that that image from Germany shows, really conspicuous public spaces, um, it, acknowledging this violence and 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 mourning it and memorializing it. I I think that that is important. You know, there's we really do need a, a, a sort of uh, a truth and reconciliation um, commission here. And I think we're, we're sort of getting it ad hoc through. You say that in your final lines, you say to remember the country more fully, we, we need to join in the work of reconstructing it. And you say we can borrow in, in order to do that. Perhaps we have to go back to the Greek god Janus. Uh, who, who for you seems to be the the key metaphor for making for America coming to terms with its past? What, why is Janus so important for you? Uh, well, I think because in as a way of envisioning uh, a future that is more equitable, that can fully realize the kind of uh, multiracial democracy that that we've that we've always aspired to and that we've already claimed. Um, in order to, to figure out how to get there, I really do think we need to look back because there is, there's a debt on the table, right? The, the reason that we're not there yet, you know, 200, you know, uh, 250 years into this, this experiment, um, it, <laughs> we're still tripping over the same problems. We're still struggling with the same questions. Um, the corpse and, is and, still on the floor, hasn't been cleaned up, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so, uh, and and we have this faulty, um, this faulty sense of our past. We don't have we don't have a clear sense of what has happened, what has been done in our name, what has led us to this moment. Um, and and so if we are uh, collectively able to square up to this past that does not flatter us, um, and and that is awfully bloody, if we can really square up to that and acknowledge that this is this is what we've done, collectively take responsibility for it, I think we're closer. It wouldn't be, it won't be everything. And and it's it's no small thing to do, way easier said than done. But if we can be honest and acknowledge that past and have come to a common understanding of, of America's history, I think we're closer to getting a, a consensus for the kinds of policies that we need to, to create that equity, um, to create that kind of equal opportunity, um, to dismantle the, the racial hierarchy that we have and to, you know, uh, address the, 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 among other things, the, the 10 to 1 racial wealth gap that we have in this country. Yeah, um, we've talked endlessly again about that, about in, um, incarceration, many other issues. But if you want to begin to come to terms with America's dark history, its true history, you need to read Connor Town O'Neill's Down Along With That Devil's Bones. Um, it's just out in paperback. So if you couldn't afford the hardback, now there's no excuse. It's a, it's a wonderful read, very accessible, very moving, uh, but also beautifully written. Congratulations, Connor, on that. What else should people be reading in these strange times as we hopefully get beyond COVID and maybe begin to come to terms with our history? What other books in addition to your uh, to your uh, paperback book should people be reading? Uh, I think I think folks would do well to read Jill Lepore's history, These Truths, that I think, at least for me anyway, it's, it's a history of the United States and it really... Um, 
Yeah, we want to get Lepore on the show. She, I've talked to her people several times. She never seems to show up, so we'll ah, need to get her. Keep trying. Keep trying. I, I, I admire her so much. It, it, and that book, it's a sweeping history, very readable, very accessible, but it, 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 really, it really traces this gap between the story that we told ourselves about what our past is and, and what has actually been done. Um, and she's just a, a terrific writer as well. Um, I, I'd also recommend a new book by Ralph Eubanks. It's called A, um, a Place Like Mississippi. Uh, it's another travelogue. He's, he's moved through Mississippi and, and talking to different writers about how that shape um, has has shaped them as writers and, and shaped their art as well. well I have to uh, I have to uh, get get him on the show. Is uh, do you know him? I do. I'm I'm actually uh, I'm I'm doing a, a talk with him next week. Um, he's he's a terrific writer as well, and um, and and this book is just out, so it'd be a perfect time to get him on. Good. Well, Connor Town O'Neill, uh, your. 2020 book is just out in paperback down along with that devil's bones really uh, really important book congratulations one uh, deservedly lots of awards uh, i'd love to have you back again in the not too distant future to talk about not just america's future but also its past thank you so much and keep well cheers thanks andrew great to talk with you